This is Tell Me What to Read, Booktopia's very own podcast. I'm Olivia Frico, and this week I'm delighted to be bringing you a very special episode. As part of our International Women's Day celebration, we'll be featuring interviews with three incredible women. First up, Sam Joyce sits down for a conversation with Kemi Neckerville, author of the incredible new book, Power, A Woman's Guide to Living and Leading Without Apology. Then, Shanu Prasad chats with writer, director and performer Eliza Riley, author of Sheila's Badass Women of Australian History. And for our final interview, Stefania Caponia sits down with Tabitha Carvin to discuss This Is Not a Book About Benedict Cumberbatch, her incredible meditation on women embracing the things that bring them joy. So check the show notes below for timestamps for all interviews, as well as links to all of the books mentioned. Now, over to Sam's interview with Kemi Neckerpill, author of Power. I'm Sam Joyce, and today I have the great privilege to be speaking to one of Australia's leading credential coaches for female executives and entrepreneur, author and international speaker, Kemi Neckerpill. Welcome to the show, Kemi. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here with you, Sam. Thank you for having me. Now, Kemi, I'm really excited to be talking to you today about your new book, Power, A Woman's Guide to Living, Living and Leading Without Apology. Uh, this is coming out on the 1st of March, so we're in the countdown today. Uh, but it's really interesting to me, this book is coming out now. The timing of this book, I think, couldn't be more um, fortuitous, couldn't be more uh, serendipitous. Um, but I would like to talk to you first about your background and sort of the story, your story before this book. Uh, you're a coach and you're, you're, you work with executives, entrepreneurs and everyone in between. Uh, so you must have met with people from all different stages and walks of life. So I wanted to ask you when we're talking about power as a coach, what has struck you the most about people's understanding of power? What is power, whether it's their own power or power in general, and particularly from those people who are already potentially in a position of power? Wow, so many great questions there. Thank <laughs> you, Sam. That's something for me to get my teeth into. Well, one of the gifts about doing the work that I do as a coach and creating space for women that are in different chapters of their careers and different chapters of their life, you know, I very much work with leaders who are interested in looking at themselves as a whole human being. So not just looking at leadership within the workplace and what their title may be, but also looking at leadership within their homes and within their communities. There are rarely anyone that comes to me and says, I want to work with you on my power. That's not a conversation that normally kicks off. But what I observe as a coach and having worked with women is that we have a very complex relationship with power. I think for many of us, power, our experience of power is that it has been done to us and it is not necessarily something that we want to replicate. So we move as far away from that as possible. What I now know through my own work and through my experience of you know, being a human living on this planet is that the power that we all need to be interested in, especially as women, is the power that we carry within us innately. The Oxford Dictionary definition of power is the capacity or ability to act in a particular way. And when we look at power from that lens, it's not an external force. 
it purely comes from us. And I think that is what is so exciting about the power that women, especially at this time, that we can hold a form of power that can never be taken away from us and that elevates each of us equally. Absolutely. It's really interesting to think about power from the perspective of a woman, because I feel like it has such a negative connotation, you know, that we're socialized to think of power in a very negative way as something that's being done to us and it's something negative or something that we shouldn't emulate as well. And it was really interesting to me reading this book. Um, it's really written for women, would you say? Oh, 100%. It's a woman's guide to living and leading without yeah. apology. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, basically I want to ask you about how did the idea of putting all of this information, this perspective onto power into a book come from? Was there a particular point where you thought, I have to get this down, I have to tell people about this? I think it was similar to, to my second book, The Gift of Asking, where working with women and speaking to women just realised, oh, you know, many of us have a relationship to asking, that we are mm -hmm. socialised to be of service to others, to be available to others, to not say no to others, because it somehow impinges on whether or not we are being a good woman, or I talk about being a good girl. And that's kind of how power revealed itself to me as well, being a coach, having conversations with women and realising we have opportunities now as women that our mothers and grandmothers never had, right, could never dream, dream of having. And yet, sometimes our internal conversations with ourselves don't allow ourselves to take those opportunities. So what women will reach out to me and say, I've just been given this job. So they have a title of power, and yet they know their inner dialogue does not match the external title. So we have these opportunities, mm. and yet we don't feel that we are deserving or worthy enough to hold on to these titles. And you're right, Sam, I think we have thought that power is, looks a particular way and that flavor of power many of us cannot connect with and it may have a very negative connotation for us, which is why I speak a lot in the book about redefining power because we don't want the power over model where people are shamed or where it's dictatorial. That's happening in the world in various ways all the time. And yes, many women are not interested in that form of power and to be honest, Many men aren't either anymore. You know, these systems that have been created that kind of project a form of power also doesn't serve men anymore. So it's an opportunity for all of us to redefine what power looks like in a way that supports more people. Yeah, I absolutely love this part of the book because I found as I was reading it that there was this new form of new understanding of what power is that I was sort of discovering through each chapter. And for me, it was much more of um, an internal, like you say, an internal power and a much more uplifting kind of power that started, that started inside, but it enabled you to bring others into their power or lift them up. And it felt so much more positive and so much more um, uh, healthy, I guess, in, in a way. And so I wanted to, first of all, thank you for that and this book and that experience. But um, I, when it comes to the one of the points in the book with regard to power, one point you made really changed my understanding of what power is. And that is uh, when you talk about how power is a process, that it takes practice, that it's ongoing. It's something that we step in and out of and then we need to take the time to reflect on and to work on as individuals. Um, and for me, that just blew my mind because I had this sort of belief that power is like an endpoint. You have to work towards it and you're not there yet until you get to that end point. And then I think when I realised that power could be something that's ongoing, that you work on, sometimes you take two steps back. That completely changed it and it made it um, so much more accessible and not overwhelming mm -hmm. or scary. 
Um, why is it so important that we understand that side of what power is? Well, firstly, thank you for sharing that idea that there's a lightness around it because, you know, now that the book is out there in the world, it's beautiful to hear other people's responses because when you say that, that is right, actually. Like, I hadn't thought of that as an author writing the book, but there I talk about the power of delight and the power of fun. In terms of us moving, you know, that we move in and out of power, one thing I know as a coach, and there are many different coaches that coach in many different ways, and there's a form of coaching that I'm not interested in, and that is the coaching where it is all about the end goal. So it's all about the doing. I'm interested in the being. Who is the person and what are the obstacles for that person? So I also know as a woman and also as a black woman as well, that intersectionality, that I will walk into some rooms and I will feel powerless because of the constructs in which I have to operate in. In the same way that I know that someone that is living with a disability will get in, well, maybe will not be able to get into some rooms because that room has not been structured for them to physically even be in that space, that we are always gonna find ourselves navigating spaces where we feel powerless. The power comes in knowing that that is what is going on, giving yourself the time and the space to reflect on what is this feeling? Why do I feel like this? Is this something external outside of me? Is this something internal? Is it a mixture of the two? And how can I build my power back up? And that may be having a conversation with someone. It may be calling, you know, a close friend or talking to a colleague and saying, actually, I didn't feel that I was heard in that meeting or did you notice that when i spoke someone spoke over me and then i retracted and then i felt powerless so then the opportunity to build the power comes in not retracting having the feeling but deciding i'm going to say excuse me i was speaking and to keep on mm -hmm. speaking so it's very small it's very small shift sometimes with coaching people think that it's about a big life shift in a moment and that's it forever and i think we set ourselves up to fail and actually we set our internal voices up to be really negative as in you should be powerful all the time why do you feel like that when you're you know with your extended family or you should feel like this there's no shooting over anyone um, because that is not powerful and i think also when you're when we're living in the world with other people you know we have to sort of have a, an attitude of fluidity, you know, in, in, in some instances, maybe we'll be the, the biggest voice in the room or the most powerful person because of our skills or our background or our experience or our role. But there are other times where we need to step aside and open up that space as well. And I think that when you realise you can do that, potentially it, it opens up more people to have an equal uh, position in power at, at one time. 100%. And I think that's where vulnerability comes into power as well to know that, you know, I sort of joke about I'm the mother of teenagers right now. And I can go and speak to thousands of people at stage come home, my teenager rolls their eyes at me and I'm gone. You know, like I don't have that same sense <laughs> as I did. You know, and it's exactly right. There can be the executive in the boardroom that very much is in her power and knows why she's there and owns her title, but has a toddler at home that is not sleeping. Like that can feel very powerless. So it, it does move. And I think the more that we can share with each other, especially as women, to say these are the spaces that I'm in where I feel I'm grounded in my power and these are the spaces where mm. I waver. The power comes from sometimes deciding I don't even want to be in those spaces anymore. Instead of thinking, I have to make myself fit in. This should be a different way. I should be more this. I should be more that, which is very different to, do you know what? I don't want to be here anymore. And that is what power looks like for that woman. Absolutely. Now, I, I want to call back to a point you made earlier about um, intersectionality. 
there's a particular chapter um, in the book called The Power of My Blackness, which I found to be one of the most moving chapters um, in the entire book. And the reason is for me, I feel like you can't have a conversation um, about power without a deep consideration of more than just empathy, but a conscious consideration and inclusion of the life experiences of others and recognizing that our life experiences and individuals are going to be different to others. Um, and as a white woman, you know, I consciously do try to remove some of those, uh, I think you call them bias blockers, mm -hmm. um, you know, in the book. And I can do that consciously as much as I can, but it's always the unconscious biases that kind of trip you up, right? Um, so I wanted to ask you, when we're talking, you know, about power and opening up the space for others to come into their power as well, what would you say to those who, who want to take that journey of uncovering their own biases when it comes to, you know, this conversation of power? Oh, it's a big one. It's complex. There's a lot of layers there. I think the first thing, once again, is just is to be aware and to be honest with yourself around where your biases are. We all want to think that we are good, kind people. And I think most of us are. It doesn't mean that we don't have, you know, bias blinkers or diversity blinkers on because we've all been socialised in a particular way. So I think two things that I would say for people that want to do more work around this, and I'm not a, you know, I'm not a diversity and inclusion expert by any means, but to do the work, you know, to do the work mm. to acknowledge that we do not walk on the planet in the same shoes. We just don't. Yeah. And there's something powerful in owning that. And I talk about in the book of the power of privilege, you know, that I, as a woman, don't have gender privilege. As a black woman, I don't have race privilege. But there are other privileges that I do have and that I that I find myself in spaces that a lot of women that look like me don't find themselves in. And I use that privilege as a mm. gift to shift things and change things and be a part of conversations that I may not have been part of, you know, at another mm. time in history. And so for me, it's a case of doing the work. Don't expect anyone else to do the work for you. And it's more powerful to own where your biases are than to pretend you don't have any. It's not about whether you're kind or not. I believe most people are kind. Mm. It's about educating yourself about the experience, the lived honest experiences of other people. Absolutely. I think, you know, re reading your book, um, I also, you know, I, I like to do things like um, my Twitter feed is, is curated, I would say, but I really consciously like to hear stories from other women, disabled women, um, Indigenous, Indigenous ex as well as a fantastic Twitter. So reading the stories in your book um, from yourself and from the other, the other stories that you had in there from other contributors, um, I think was really powerful. I actually really liked the, the chapter process of how it was um, uh, you had uh, your chapter, your perspectives, power processes, and then there was also um, those other stories from other contributors um, uh, sliced in there as well. And it felt for me, um, you got to see some of those power processes in practice, mm. in a sense, other people going through those stages from their own you know, life experiences yes. as well. Yes, 100%. And, and I have always loved having other women's stories in my books because, once again, I'm not walking in their shoes either. I've had the privilege of working with them in some way um, or some of them in my mm. book, The Gift of Asking, they were, you know, some of them were close friends, not just clients because, and when I read their stories, I'm like, oh, wow, you know, what power looked like for you in that situation would have been completely different for me because I know that we are all moved by story. And the more women, the more of us that can read each other's stories, it gives us more and more of a sense of my experience is real, it is validated, I do not have to justify it, I don't need to apologise for it, and I'm not alone. I mean, that is... 
that is the power of Toronto Burke's Me Too movement for people that mm -hmm. have suffered for abuse in any way can just say, me too. And, and that's, yeah. and, you know, that is powerful in its own that we share each other's stories and that we listen to each other and we hold them as truth. And that allows each of us to individually navigate the world, but withholding each other's stories and supporting each other's power. Absolutely. And the, the Me Too movement has really progressed, you know, in different ways, in different contexts over the last few years. And something that we've seen in the Australian context is the stories of Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins. I think, you know, watching, watching this, the, these two amazing women over the last year uh, tell their story, um, they, you know, it seems to have been um, at a flashpoint or perhaps they were at the flashpoint or one of several flashpoints in the last year in, in terms of conversations that, are that we're having in Australia about women in society. Um, you know, they, watching them own their stories and their power in front of the nation has to have been the most incredible experience. Um, and then as a result, you know, we've seen them shake the foundations of some very powerful institutions, you know, and I think that the, when, when I was reading your book, I couldn't help but think about Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins and how they've come into their own power at that national stage. Mm. But it also made me think about for others who are coming into their own power, how that might shake the foundations of their personal relationships or their values or their beliefs about themselves mm. and how there's those many different scales of, of what power can do um, and impact your own life. So I wanted to ask you, do you believe that as women step into their power as a community and as a society that we can make those kinds of lasting changes that are going to improve the lives of women today and in the future? To be honest, Sam, I believe that we already have. I think we have been doing that for generations. I think we have, regardless of our backgrounds, I think the ultimate fear or one of the fears that women have is that we have literally been burnt at the stake for having power. You know, it, we, we all know it. We know how women are trashed in the media if they have a voice. And I'll be honest, you know, I saw Grace Tame's speech. I saw Brittany Higgins' speech. Incredible. But the thing that I got really curious about was the backlash when Grace didn't smile. And I just thought that backlash is the epitome of what it is like when women decide not to be good and how she could just stand there. A very small action, a very small action to not smile. And yet the ramifications of that action, and then I would imagine how that galvanized so many of us in different ways that we don't always have to smile. We don't always have to be quiet. We don't have to be meek. You know, I come from an English culture where very much women, we are quiet and we are meek. But my heritage is Nigerian, where women are not quiet and they are not meek. But I was raised in England, so I have my own complexities around that as well. It is so exciting how women are standing up and using their voices with no apology. And, and that's the tagline of the book, without apology. We are allowed to speak without apology. We are allowed to be seen without apology in whatever we want to wear, no matter our ages. We are allowed to have conversations without apology. And we are allowed to shape the status quo without apologizing for it because the systems that have been in place have worked in some ways. You know, I'll be honest, I say this in the book, even if a system is restrictive and it kills you from the inside out, in some ways it's kind of reassuring and comforting to know where you stand. 
you know, in terms of gender roles through history, it's kind of like men knew what men were to do and women knew what women were to do and everyone was fine, thank you very much. And it's really scary for people when these structures start to change. But I think most of us want to live into a world where everyone can feel that they are able to have their unique power acknowledged and valued and that we can belong together as a unique human society where less of us are on the margins and that we can all come together um, to shift mm. things. Amazing. I love listening to you speak, Kemi. Sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, look, I have, to, I have to ask one final question, which is why is it important to you as a coach and as an author um, that women know that they can and should build their build their power and own their power and um also finally what is the one thing that you would love a reader to take away from from your book if they could only take away one thing okay so to answer the first question the world has never needed female leadership in the way that it does now and i don't mean leadership in the in the boardroom or ceos i mean women leading themselves for themselves for those that have children, our children are watching us, our boy children are watching us, our girl children are watching us, and our non-binary children are watching us. And we need to create spaces for them to step into their power and own who they are and their identities and their voices. And they can't do that unless they see us doing it, their carers, whatever that looks like. We also, as I said, we have opportunities we've never had before, and I want us to be able to stand in them and own them because we have worked for them and we deserve to be in whatever room it is that we want to be. In regard to what do I want a woman to take away from the book, I'm not sure you're gonna like my answer, but this is partly being a coach for a decade. It's not my job to give advice. What I hope for and what I intend is that every single woman, and also there are a few men that will read this book and a few men that I know already have, that you take away whatever it is that you need. That's why there are 14 stories from other women there are my stories from my life, but also my stories as a coach and as a speaker and as a writer, as a business owner, that you will take whatever it is that you need to step into your power so you can live the life that you want without apology. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kenny, uh, for joining us today. It's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure. Uh, listeners, you can buy Power, A Woman's Guide to Living and Leading Without Apology by Kemi Nexapil on Booktopia right now. Now over to Shanu's interview with Eliza Riley, author of Sheila's. Hi, I'm Shanu Prasad, Lifestyle Category Manager, and I'm so, so excited to be joined today um, by Eliza Riley, uh, award-winning content creator, creative director, and now author. Welcome, Eliza. Thank you so much for having me. First, I just want to say congratulations on uh, the best book title so far this year <laughs> and title that I don't think a lot of people were going to be expecting to find in the history section of, um, of their library, bookstore or any other place where they put the history books. So um, <laughs> tell us the title of your amazing book that we are here to talk about today. The best book title of 2022 as of early 2022 is <laughs> Sheila's Badass Women of Australian History. And isn't that the book that we have been waiting for? Yes. As a person who used to write about suffragettes and do my debating on suffragettes when I was really? 
Yes. Oh my God. Oh my God. My public speaking on, on the suffrage <gasps> movement. <laughs> this is the book that I wish I had then. Although I don't think the conservative school would probably have put the book into the library with some of the language that's in it. But um, oh. <laughs> I hope that all I hope that all schools decide to take this book because it is genius. And I just really I really want to thank you as a person also that has very much enjoyed um, the series that you did that can still be found on YouTube today with the same name. Am I right? Where Correct. you talk, you uh, reenact. Uh, um, the, the the life stories, the stories that made these uh, these women that you um, uh, talk about uh, amazing. Um, but you've done it in a book form and we get heaps more stories of heaps more really cool women. How many women are in this book that we need to know about? There are 13 Sheilas in th this gorgeous, gorgeous hardcover book. Uh, I've, I've uh, assembled a uh, charcuterie platter of the best uh, badass women that maybe you didn't know about or you need to know more about. Uh, I have selected women from the 1880s all the way to the 1980s. So a good 100 year chunk worth of Sheila's. I have to say, reading through this book, it was amazing and they're all incredible. What was really sad to me, though, was how <laughs> men didn't seem to have changed one iota, or the media, really, in, uh, in not only the 100 years, but literally I was reading through your introduction now where we're talking about, you know, a good woman and how women are being polite and being nice, and we are literally having that debate, like, <sighs> right now in the media. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> it does not seem to matter what, what era we're talking about. Women have had to face some pretty tough challenges and um, I guess it's true about you know if the history you don't know you're doomed to you're doomed to repeat so um, can you tell us which of these women like first drew you to the idea of like yeah I want to know more about like great women in Australian history that we just don't hear about is there one particular story that got you first yeah definitely I call her my gateway Sheila in <laughs> the book but that is a World War II spy, Nancy Wake. And she was the most wanted woman of World War II. Uh, she had a six million franc bounty on her head. And that is not, I'm not accounting for inflation. This was six million francs in the, in the 1939. Yeah. And she was amazing. She judo chopped Nazis to death. She would jump out of planes and she was at one point um, in charge of 3,000 French resistance soldiers deep in the forest. And the thing that got me really stumped, the thing that floored me, is that she grew up in the same suburb that I went to high school in. And she went to North Sydney Girls, which is really close to where I went to high school. And, you know, I took extension history. Like I was yep. a history nerd from when I was a young child. <laughs> and I didn't know about her. We didn't speak about her in our history class. All we heard about is these valiant men and the numbers of men that died. And I really, as a 16, 17 year old person, would have loved to have had Nancy as a North Star to go towards. You know, when I was, you know, 
being heartbroken or getting kicked out of house parties. Like I would have loved to be like, well, if Nancy can do that, I can certainly sit my final year school exams, which just felt so big at the time. So she finding out years later uh, that she existed, like years later, it was a really big sort of wake up call to be like, if that was so obviously, if Nancy Wake was so in my face for such a long time during high school and I didn't know she existed, surely there are others that are, yeah, out there. And yeah, so she was definitely the one that started the whole journey. And she's probably the most well-known one still, but I still didn't know. And, you know, it just... Yeah, well-known, but not in the curriculum. And if it's not in the curriculum and if you're not studying at school... Like, how do you find out about these things unless, you know, your dad got the Peter Fitzsimons um, book on her for oh. Christmas or something? You just wouldn't, you just wouldn't know. So, But uh, also, yeah, it just also just didn't like, you know, these, these stories are told, but unless they're told to you in a way that really can capture who you are at the time, this, they, they kind of get, you know, thrown in a corner and gather dust on top of it. And I really have enjoyed really... Um, exploring these stories and making them telling them through the perspective of a young person in modern Australia who needs a roadmap to themselves. I think, I think um, I I pretty much laughed and laughed, horrified laughed as well throughout this entire book. But one of my favorite sections right (laughs) at the beginning was uh, horrified laughed. I should explain because you're just like, again, no, I love it. I'm so angry angry that these women got treated so badly. But like you you talk about it in a way that makes you just, you can't help but laugh. And then you kind of feel bad that you're laughing, but you are extremely extremely funny. I can't get over it. I was reading bits aloud to my husband going, no, 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 no. This bit's even funnier than the last bit. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That's so nice of you to say. I mean, I like to think like you're, if you're not laughing, you're shouting. Yeah. Like if you are not making, like if you're not, you know, you've got to (laughs) dissipate that energy somehow and making jokes about the situation that are sometimes extremely horrifying, disturbing, upsetting, you know, like it's a way to actually tackle the tough stuff without feeling like you want to just wrap up in a little ball on the floor because it's just so shocking. Yeah. I mean, the way you describe how (laughs) and how you uh, try and um, how you make it modern when you try and describe what it would be like to ride side saddle um, was just the best thing I've ever, best description I've ever, ever, ever heard about that. <laughs> and as anyone that's watched any of any kind of historical, you know, historical shows on TV and seen the women doing that, you know, you kind of, you don't actually, from watching on TV, you go, yeah, that doesn't look very good, but you don't realise how constricting and how much that actually stopped women from living a, a, a life where she could actually like leave the house until yeah. you really describe it in the way that you do. And I won't talk too more, much more about that because I want everyone to read the description for themselves because it is <laughs> it's joyful. And it explains and it, it goes to the heart of what you're saying. You need to meet people where they are and try and explain to them in ways that like make sense to where they are now rather than try yeah. and like, get them excited about something that maybe that is 100 years old in a 100 years old way. Get them excited. Correct. Oh. Speaking of 100 years ago, well, more than 100 That was years really ago. well put. By the way, I'm going to start explaining that to other people. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I absolutely loved it. But um, um, Marianne, Marianne Buck, 
is a woman. It's a woman. It's a woman that no one knows about. And I can't <laughs> believe it because if Captain Thunderbolt gets a really sad looking rock, uh, she at least should have gotten a tree, right? Something. <laughs> oh. Tell me a little bit about Marianne Bug and why I mentioned Captain Thunderbolt when I mentioned her. <laughs> so Marianne Bug was an 1880s uh, First Nations bushranger. Uh, she was a proud Waramai woman. And uh, that is around sort of like the Maitland... New South Wales area inland <laughs> and she had the unfortunate predicament that a lot of us ladies are in and she had a dropkick boyfriend who was a total loser in my opinion <laughs> and took all the credit for her work and gets all of the glory even in 2022. So if you're listening to this and you can safely Google, Google Urala, which is uh, Marianne Bug and Captain Thunderbolt's main sort of bush ranging territory. And essentially every little pin that comes up in Google Maps is about Captain Thunderbolt. Captain Thunderbolt has a rock. Captain Thunderbolt has a, like a little museum. Captain Thunderbolt has a highway. Captain Thunderbolt has a Shiraz and a pie and a statue. And Marianne Bug, who I argue in the book, is was the neck that turns the head. She was the brains of the whole operation. She taught Captain Thunderbolt how to read and write. Um, and she did everything for them. She had 13 children. That was insane. I could not believe that. That was, I was like, whoa. <laughs> 13 children is just unbelievable to me and a little bit <laughs> like throat clenching like I get very uncomfortable I will be speaking to this with my therapist but I get viscerally like uncomfortable thinking about 13 children oh yeah. my god but that's in the 1880s when she's running around on horseback you know fighting cops and you know living a life of fabulous crime and she even would break out her good-for-nothing boyfriend Captain Thunderbolt when he got caught and sent to prison and she was smart and savvy and strategic enough to never get caught. So thereby, therefore, sh her name was never in the records because she was a better bush ranger. You know, she was she was so good. That that is she, crazy, right? Yeah, <laughs> so Australian. It's so Australian that we just <laughs> celebrate the idiots. <laughs> yeah, because they're the ones who get caught. Yeah. Whereas the ones who are good enough to not get caught just slip through the hands of time and are essentially lost. Yeah. And I feel like Marianne Bugger in one hand, that would have been a really big goal of hers to not raise suspicion or alarm. Maybe as an outlaw, you don't want your name printed in the papers. But on the other hand, I'm, you know, I'm picking her up and wrenching her back into 2022 because I think her story really deserves to be told. Absolutely. I mean, you've got to look after 13 kids. You certainly don't want to be getting put away. And then, especially if you've got a drop kick <laughs> oh. who's like, who wants to be famous more than he wants to provide for his family, it seems like. No. But we've all, we've all, we've all had really terrible dating histories. You know, we all know who that person is in our <laughs> own lives. That it's like, you know, where, or even in your workplace where the guy the, sitting right next to you at the table gets all the credit when it was your idea, your pitching, like yeah. we all get it. So much has changed and yet so little has changed too. <laughs>
But the um, thing that also hasn't changed is, yeah, like the media hasn't changed. Yeah, no. cool. Where I'm literally pulling that information from, and we, and I'm just like, yeah. Oh, that, that so cool. the like the book in the book, there's beautiful graphics and gorgeous um, uh, source material that I pulled in, and that was super important to me because I legitimately thought that like people wouldn't think that it's real and yeah. I'm gonna have to put in the actual like 1800s smudgy inked article because like they were, it's just so ridiculous yeah you're just like how could this even be even be true yeah. and I, I'm not talking about what the women are doing I'm talking about the media reaction to yeah <laughs> and to I them. think it's yeah. yeah but also it's good to sort of for me as the author yes this is a hilarious book that tells the stories of real women through the perspective of a 20-something girl. But it's also incredibly resourced. It is historically backed. It is, you know, if I don't understand something or if I can't find a piece of information, I say it in the book. You are coming with me on this journey where there aren't all the answers. There isn't, there, this isn't cut and dry. And if I imagine anything, I tell you, like I'm imagining she did this. I ne would never say like, she did this and I just sort of make Maybe. it up. I, no, that, that's so, cause that's what's so important. It's important to protect these women's stories because as I say in the book, like the women's stories are, um, not accurate until proven accurate. Like, oh, she couldn't have been that brave. She couldn't have been that daring. Like, let's try and find a reason why she didn't do that. As opposed to say how we give men the opportunity to join the ranks of legend, where we hold, we understand that Ned Kelly didn't do everything that he was rumored and legend to do. We understand that, but then we can also embrace him for that. Like we can hold those two things, but with women, it's like very uncomfortable for us to accept that she's spun into legend. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I definitely appreciated as a, also a, a bit of a history nerd myself, all of the primary, primary sources um, that you were able to include. <laughs> <laughs> um, one, of the, one, of the, one of the women that I, I, have, I had heard about before this book, but I hadn't done a lot of research and it's kind of just little bits here and there and I know there's a little bit more I guess in the pop culture about her now but one of the most most interesting I think the most out there woman in the in that she just literally rejected every every norm that society would put before her would have been um uh Rosaline Norton aka ah! the, the witch of King's Cross on social media now there's this kind of um uh, revival of her and there's a documentary that someone has made somewhere and yeah. I saw Americans Americans going oh my goodness do you know about this about this woman I'm like hey I know about her she's Australian <laughs> you know and, yeah. that's, and that's like you know but that's only been in the last couple of months so I'm not ta I'm talking like super recently so um she she was just she's just not not a woman that you would expect to um when when people get told about what women were like back in the day right and this was when she, she was sort of at her height of her sort of fame, should we say, in the was it 30s and 40s. Yeah. So this is not the kind of woman that you would expect to be kind of talked about back then. So can you tell us a little bit about, about her and why, why she was called the Witch, of, the Witch of King's Cross? Well, the Witch of King's Cross, uh, she also went by the name of Thorn, which was like her... Um, her 
kink name. <laughs> like her name that she would call herself because she worshipped the god Pan, which uh, is a part of <laughs> spooky, witchy, devilly, Beelzebubby sort of area. It's I, I'm I'm skipping over my words because it is very specific and I know that I'm probably pissing off a lot of witches by getting the terms wrong so I've got to educate myself better but she was an amazing artist who lived and worked in the heart of King's Cross in Sydney Australia and she was an open bisexual which is I don't even know what to say about that. Like people find it really difficult to be acknowledged as bisexual even today. And here she was nearly a hundred years ago, flaunting and flouting that piece of information. She also would say that she had, she enjoyed intercourse with gay men because then she gets to play the dominant role, which (laughs) is like just absolutely mind blowing. Um, You know, that she, I feel really, sad for her because she ended up living a really tough life because of the persecution of the New South Wales police at the time and even the Queen and the Crown herself. She is the only artist in Australian history to have their work burned, literally burned, by order of the Crown. And yeah, so she lived a kind of a tough life and ended up sort of dying alone in King's Cross. And I just, I go to some of my parties. Like I went to like a coven, like an artistic where all these beautiful women sat around a fire and we like burned things and declared what we wanted in our life. And I just was like, oh my God, I wish Rosaline could be here. She is the person that I, like, my heart, I'm like, you would totally love living in this time. And I think you would find some amazing friends. And, I mean, that's, like, getting pretty personal, my, my, like, the author relationship with the subject. But, like, that's really how I feel. She's totally awesome and weird, a total weirdo. And yeah. I think she would just, like, light up the town if she was alive today. And her art is just amazing. So you can yeah. still there's a little bit of it. There's a little bit of it in the um, in the book. But so yeah. if you can if you can search some more of that out, you just like you, well. You and if anyone of- has her, like there is a there is a book of her work circulating, but it's super private. Like it's real. I yeah. couldn't get my hands on it. So if you have a copy, hit me up on DMs. I would love to read it myself. <laughs> oh yeah, there's there's an opportunity if someone does have one, maybe for a reprint. Maybe Pan Matt's listening right now and would like Very to, good. to bring Rosalind Norton's work. Into yeah, we'd have to the all go into we'd have to all go into like hypnotic chants for seventy two hours and contact Rosaline Thorne through the astral plane and speak to her because yes. that's what she would have done. Uh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> so I love that you've included women in there that, um, and that's what I think is great about this book as well is that the women in there have are all and you call them sheilas and you the reason you call them sheilas because that was a term that was not actually a positive term and you're kind of reclaiming that back is that right like in the beginning of the book you kind of talk a little bit yeah. about wouldn't really want to be a sheila which is kind of a bit odd for us to think about now because for us if we think about that word it doesn't seem like a bad word but no well i only found it was important to me to put it in the book because uh, as you said at the, at the top the web series 
uh, was out and I was doing press for the web series and going on a lot of radio, talk back radio and people would just call up and be sort of, uh, I say people, I mean male boomers would call up and be like, young lady, like, do you know what that word means? Like, that's not a cool thing to be. And that was honestly the first time that I'd ever heard a Sheila being not a cool thing. And so for this book, I really uh, went into the etymology of what a Sheila was and why do boomer white men not want us to be that? It's really interesting and I'm sort of leaning into that to be like, well, why can't I be what you're scared of me to become? Yeah. Like, why can't I be a Sheila? Yeah, and I I love that. And I think that that is, and again, I I recommend definitely getting this book (laughs) and reading that section of it because it was was interesting to me as well because I was like, oh, I just thought of it as being like a really ochre Australian kind of term, but I didn't realise there was this history, this history to it. So... It's like, yeah, you were essentially a loose woman. woman. Yes, no morals yeah. there. Yes, no, no morals. Which you know, if you go, <laughs> yeah, which I want to be like, okay, let's talk about that. Yeah, let's talk about morality and women and which their behaviour, which you also do to great. Um, I think that's a really interesting point you also make in the book about what is what is morality and what is that actually um, morality compared to what you have to yes. have compare it to to have a morale, morality exist um yeah and something that i uh one of the stories to me the, the 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 one that i was um really impressed by was the one that i, I a woman that i actually i really i feel terrible myself that i haven't heard of her but um <laughs> fake bandler i knew you were gonna say fake bandler. right because yeah I had heard a little bit about a lot of the other women, not a lot, but like a little bit, yeah. but her name, when I was like, I was like, no, going through my, I'm like, I don't recognize her at <laughs> all. And the fact that she was instrumental in, yeah. um, you know, in getting the, uh, the referendum happening so that mm. one of the worst parts of our entire history in this country, mm. that Aboriginal first nations, people, first, first nations, the people that were here first were not considered true Australians until mm. such a ridiculously late time in our history and then all mm. the problems that that's meant and all the things that are happening now. But the, mm. why, we don't know about, why we don't know about her. Um, mm. I know we don't have a lot of time left, but I would love if we could end or if you could just tell us a little bit, a brief sort of snapshot about Faith Bandler and what she did. So Faith Bandler was a woman of colour who was instrumental in changing two amendments in the constitution in 1967. She campaigned for like 10 years. I think it's really interesting because she wasn't, you know, First Nations herself. She, her father was actually um, a slave that was abducted as a child from Vanuatu and uh, came to Australia. Uh, And her, a woman called Pearl Gibbs and a woman called Jessie Street, uh, I call them the Action Girls. They were this amazing trio of... uh, you know, women who did not stop until they felt like they had moved the needle towards equality. And they campaigned and ended up changing the constitution with a unprecedented 90.77% vote. Yes, we will uh, add uh, in the constitution, they say Aboriginal people or people of any other sort of race as a part of the Australian constitution, which meant that they were counted as a population. And it also meant that 
federally, um, quote unquote, Aboriginal people had um, laws that could protect them. So, you know, Faith talks about this idea that like, if you were a First Nations person, if you were a Pichinjara person in Perth and you happened to go to New South Wales on Gadigal land and you were just doing that for your own reasons, you could be passing through state lines and be thrown in jail or go through a number of different inconsistent, um, state I by guess, state rules, right? Yeah, state by state rules. And you could be like thrown in jail for not even, for just going, moving state lines. Um, and that was also really not publicized. And, you know, um, it was just such an unfair and really frustrating situation that Faith saw. And she really wanted to change. And she, you know, also paid the price for it in a way. Her and Pearl and Jesse were, you know, stalked by ASIO and documented for years. They followed her overseas and she was one of the first ever subjects that were documented on film when ASIO was starting to secretly film their subjects. Um, and they would just keep their eye on her for the rest of her life and so she had to actually use the public pay phones if she wanted to have a conversation with her mates because all of her phones were bugged it's a crazy it's a crazy time right that spy kind of time in the in the, in the 60s uh <laughs> so many so many stories but the only good thing about that for, our, for i guess for us now is that there is more historical uh documentation than there would have been you know than there would have been otherwise even if it is yeah, I read her ASIO file, which was really fun um, because it's, you know, public record now and I'm sure they've uh, redacted some what? of it, but it's super, I don't know, it's super cute. They were just like, I, I really love that they were taking Faith seriously um, because she was an absolute weapon. And so in one way, I'm like, this is so cool that they're actually taking this gorgeous, pillboxed hat, gorgeous little clutch purse. She was going to church every Sunday and getting people to sign petitions. I'm glad, I'm glad that she has that element to her, um, that she was taken seriously by the, you know, secret services because she changed history. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is an awesome place to end with women <laughs> changing history and women continuing to change history. And let's just hope that we don't need a special book about women in future, all our history books in future, this is my hope, will be just, of course they're going to have women doing awesome things in it because women yeah. do awesome things all the time. And yeah. uh, Eliza, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, as I've said to you multiple times, you have to read this book. Not to you because you read it, you wrote it. I'm like, That's I have. A... <laughs> um, if you uh, would like to buy a copy of Sheila's Badass Women of Australian History, you can do so as we speak from Booktopia or your favourite local bookstore. Thanks again, Liza. Thank you. Now for our final interview celebrating International Women's Day, Stefania sits down with Tabitha Carvin, author of This Is Not A Book About Benedict Cumberbatch. and welcome today. I'm, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about this book. I absolutely loved it. I had so much fun 
reading it. I laughed out loud so many times and there were so many places where I was just nodding my head in agreement. So I feel like we're on the same page <laughs> with all of it. Um, I'm very pleased to hear it. Thank you. <laughs> the title is a bit of a mouthful. Mm. Okay, so it's called, This is Not a Book About Benedict Cumberbatch. And having read it, it really isn't. But there's a lot about Benedict Cumberbatch in it and you talk about him constantly and all the time. So we discussed it's not an easy book to describe, but can you maybe give us your elevator pitch about what you think this book really is about? Yeah, I have to say, uh, you're referencing how much uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is actually in it. I have to say, when I received the first, you know, paper copy of the book and I just flipped through it, I was like, oh, my God, it says Benedict Cumberbatch like 20 times on every page. Um, so it is, yes, it is both about and not about Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, okay, so the elevator pitch is it's about how it's a memoir of how I became obsessed with the actor Benedict Cumberbatch completely by surprise uh, when I was at home with my two young children. And uh, I found this to be an extremely weird and slightly upsetting experience because I couldn't really understand why it was happening and what it meant uh, about me that it was happening to me. Uh, and then it uh, it kind of follows the journey of, of me meeting other people in having the same experience, uh, mostly like middle-aged women uh, who have also unexpectedly fallen for Benedict Cumberbatch. And then through the process of getting to know them and listening to their stories, I begin to realise that actually, you know, this is a wonderful experience that we're all sharing. We're all extremely happy to have fallen for Benedict Cumberbatch. So why does it make us feel like it's, it's you know, we're behaving weirdly or embarrassingly or it's like a regression to adolescence? You know, what is it um, about women's passion and women's desire that prompts in us that kind of negative uh, reaction? So that was, it was a very long elevator ride. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that bit. Um, so did you know you wanted to write the book? Did it come after the obsession or were you always thinking that you wanted to write a book? So when did, it, when did the journey start? Did you have an idea where it was going to go? Yeah, so the idea, I, the idea to, to write about the obsession at all came from my husband. And I actually mentioned this in the book that it didn't really, it wasn't occurring to me at the time that it was happening, <laughs> that, it was, that it was of interest to anyone else. Uh, and he's the person who's like, you know, actually, this is, this, I think this is something you should write about. So uh, I, um, I wrote like a personal essay, just like a 3,000 word personal essay for a, an American um, website called Mother, M-U-T-H-A, uh, about how I, very specifically talking about how I rediscovered my sense of self as a mother uh, through Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, and then uh, the response to that essay was pretty overwhelming. Uh, I had so many people writing to me saying, oh, like, I exactly understand what you're talking about here, which was extremely surprising because the way I pitched that essay was that, you know, this totally specific novel thing has happened to me. 
I am a woman that found my sense of self in motherhood through Benedict Cumberbatch. And the reaction was, oh, no, like literally this exact same thing happened to me from all these women from all over the world. And so I knew from that point straight away, oh, the, that's, this is, there's something more to this than I realised. And that's when I kind of started fishing around for um, to what it was. I wrote a few more essays about different aspects of uh, what I was discovering about um, girls and their their girly interests and and you know what we do with that. I wrote a lot about fan fiction. I wrote about celebrity conspiracy theories, uh, and then eventually kind of was able to see what the overall uh, thesis of the book would be. And then I wrote a book, <laughs> and it's a great book. Um, so you mentioned that the first essay was in the US mm. and you were saying that there's a huge interest in the US at the moment with this book. I know that there was a big um, battle to get this, the rights for this book. So can you tell us a little bit about how the Americans are reacting to it? Yeah, I mean, I was very lucky to get a joint uh, deal. Uh, so with HarperCollins in Australia and Putnam, Penguin, in um, the US. So I've been, the whole time I've been putting it together, I've known that it, there's gonna be two <laughs> versions. Um, and it was it was very interesting seeing their different kind of requirements <laughs> for what, what they wanted to emphasize and trying to end up with a book that is essentially the same, you know, in both US reader who just, he, he was, the number of things they're like, we don't know what that is. We don't know who Robbie Williams is. We don't know who Take That oh, is. That was, most, that was the most shocking thing to oh me. Oh my God. I was like, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the interest is is great over there. It's, uh, it comes out in uh, at the end of May. And I think, uh, I mean, it's the same as the interest in Australia. I think people are at a, they're at a place in our lives right now uh, looking for something just fun, just, just fun, purely fun. But it's not just fun, that's the thing. It's fun and that's reading it, I was laughing, I was happy, it made me happy, but it also brought up a lot of really big ideas and big questions. So one of them, I need to confess, I, like you, I was a huge, still am, a huge fan of music and of bands. Um, I also used to love In Excess, <laughs> but I was, I, I was a huge Durani, so I had all the posters yes. and all the, all the magazines. Um, but anyway, I really related to everything you wrote about being a band fan and what the way you need to behave as a fan and the expectation when you go to see a band. So I recently went and saw Duran Duran and Radiohead, months apart. And it was two very different experiences, I must say. So um, can you explain what you mean about um, how there's a right way and a wrong way to behave as a fan and why the way girls do it is seen as a wrong way? Uh, can I ask, which, was, which concert did you enjoy the most before I answer? <laughs> I enjoyed Duran Duran. Yes, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I am a huge... I, I am an absolutely huge fan of Radiohead, mm. but my girlfriend and I were one of the few people up dancing. Yeah. People, you know, <laughs> at those sorts of, you know, very earnest bands, people just 
why would you turn up and just sit there and not react? I find that very strange. Yeah, um, the reason I ask is because that's like that's that's the answer, right? Like <laughs> that there is. Um, and I, like a huge caveat to this is that like I'm in my 40s and so all like most of my band going experience is like from the 90s um, and early 2000s and I, I think it absolutely is different now if you were to be a young person. You should have been in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But There's I think... a picture of screaming. Exactly, but I think in the 90s like we were, it, there was a really... Yes like sad culture of um bands that if you were a serious band if you're a serious artist you didn't care you showed disdain for your audience it was like it was the whole kind of apathy era of being like pathetic and not giving a damn and so there was just a pretty toxic relationship i think um between musicians and their fans during that period um, and even bands like Radiohead that I like, I don't think are the main offenders. There's still a sense that you don't go there to have fun, to scream, to lose your mind, to feel like turned on, or you know, you go there to, to you know, to, you know, hold on in <laughs> and nod and appreciate the fine, the fine music, and that's totally okay. Like that is a completely fine, okay way to enjoy music, but it, it's it's just one like it's not objectively the best uh way of, of appreciating live music and i so i do think that uh people our age and i forgive forgive me for assuming the uh, your age here uh, I, I think i'm a bit older than you but anyway. <laughs> i think that, that if you were a girl at that time you were caught in your trap of um thinking that that was the appropriate way or the most credible legit way to respond to music at a concert uh and that uh yeah and that's sad that's sad yeah, yeah it's sad i think you it's know, at radiohead i didn't care that people behind me were annoyed that i was dancing because mm. you know what mm. i'd waited a year with mm. those tickets to go and see that band and i just wanted to have fun yeah so, and um, i mean i've heard from so many um women who talk about things like uh like women our age that when they took their teenage daughters to see a band like one direction and then it was all on like the screaming and the losing yourself that was that was when they rediscovered that joy that they had lost or maybe had never had a chance to experience of just like losing yourself in the moment um yeah. but it's you know it's moments right exactly yeah and i mean i do think it's it helps if the audience is mostly female, like, or, you know, is, is mostly on your page, I should say, it doesn't matter actually what gender they are. But yeah, it helps if, uh, if there's a kind of uniform uh, fandom, I think. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so speaking of, of music, it goes hand in hand with dancing. So I mentioned that, right, getting up and dancing at Radiohead. You talk about these events. So I didn't realise they were called No Lights, No Lycra. Like I'd heard about them and I was really fascinated. I went, oh, I'd love to go and do that. But then at the same time, I was a bit sad about it. I went, oh my God, how, do, how have we come to this point that to have fun, we've got to do it in the dark. So can you explain to people what these events are and what the audience is and your experience when you went to one of the events? 
All right. So, yeah, in, in the book, I talk about how, you know, all my friends as, as they started turning 40 were contacting me and saying, you know, you've got to come along to this no lights, no lycra thing with me or you've got to go to, you know, to the one in your town. So it's where the lights are completely off. They're, it's absolutely pitch black. Um, you're all, you, they play music and the idea is you dance literally like nobody is watching. And um, like I, people really, really love these um, evenings and I do not want to take away from anyone's experience of that. And I also had a great time when I was there as well. But the, the thing is, is that like there's no communion um, with, with the, the fellow dancers. And it is also, like you said, like you're having to do it with, <laughs> with the lights off, um, which is a... It's a kind of, it's, it's a bit, oh, I really don't want to take away anyone's fun. No, no, no. The people I've heard who've gone, they've loved it. They love it. Yeah. But for me, yeah, yeah. I walked away and I, I was just like, turn the bloody lights on. Like, you know, we should be comfortable enough and happy yes. enough um, to do this in front of other people. Uh, and, and, you know, what is it that is preventing us? Yeah, and from, I think that's my question, right? Yeah. Why do we come to this point in our age where we're uncomfortable about people seeing us having fun and being joyful? Like, why do we need to, to do it without an audience? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like you said, this is a big question, right? Like, I think... Uh, I think it serves society, in inverted commas, uh, the patriarchy, I mean, effectively, for women to age out of things that don't, uh, you know, that aren't in service to other people's needs, basically. I, I think what happens is that we are kind of socialised uh, towards uh, the, uh, an idea of maturity that is controlled, guarded, small, and that is about caring for other people and, um, you know, performing domestic unpaid labour and uh, all the things that you need women to do to keep society running. And so then I think to, to be someone who is not conforming to the idea of what a mature woman is, uh, is, you know, it's transgressive. I, it feels... To transgressive to, to be doing that letting other people see you do that just you know it is purely just for your own sake um and you and to not and i mean a huge one is also just to not be caring how you look like it's we're socialized from you know from so young to care about how we look to other people, how our appearance makes other people feel, how to perform appropriately for whatever appearance we have, um, at whatever age, what clothes to wear at the appropriate age and the appropriate location. And to, to it's really hard, I think, to let go of that and say, I don't, I don't care about those things. And I think we put women who display that attitude of not caring in a category of like weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> like, as a, like that person is a weirdo or eccentric or they, um, you know, or worse, to be honest. Um, yeah. Men don't do that though, do they? You mentioned, you talk about in the book how men are embarrassed about their obsession with fishing and with sport and 
they leave space in their lives for play. Um, so why, um, you know, I think maybe it's to do with sport. I don't know. These were the sorts of questions that were going through my mind while I was reading the book. Why is it so different for men and women? Can you talk a little bit about what you think about um, how men can protect their play, you call it play in the book? Yeah, I think, well, I just think they're the ones who've been making the decision about what is and isn't an appropriate form of play. I mean, it's just the, <laughs> it's just some pastimes are kind of sanctified as being um, appropriate, good uses of our time, uh, you know, such as watching sport, even though they are completely pointless. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, even though they can take up a lot of time, and uh you know and it's completely okay to like you say to scream or shout or lose yourself in that setting and it's arbitrary i mean the reason why it's okay to do that at sport and not okay to do that uh, you know dancing or with your girlfriends at a concert is just simply because the people who have made the decisions about what is appropriate and isn't you know that's their interests like it's just that cycle of <laughs> of power at work you know but I mean, it's i i think you can see it changing and just to go back to music um you know when i was reading music uh journalism when you know in, when i was a teenager it was almost all men so it was just simply men writing about music that they thought was the pinnacle of musicianship uh for you know and and you know and so they were choosing mostly male artists and if they chose female artists they wrote about them from a male perspective and just that when you see when you open rolling stone today and just see the diversity of writers and the diversity of artists they're writing about it's like oh suddenly it's like suddenly you can be, um, you know, a Rolling Stone uh, journalist and like Taylor Swift. Whereas in the 90s, this absolutely, the equivalent would not have been allowed. And that it's, it's just the same thing. It's like, so it's okay to be a sport fan, uh, you know, currently, but it's not okay to be a um, Duran Duran, a mature Duran Duran fan, shall we say. Uh, and that's just simply because, you know, that it hasn't, we haven't been socialised to, to broaden our, our viewpoint of what is and isn't okay. But women um, have contributed to that a little bit. Like, I find it, like, honestly, when I go to girlfriends' birthdays, so for any girlfriends listening, I'm sorry, I apologise, um, but I really don't like going to theme parks. That's just one of my things. And I think as you get older, you get invited, every party you go to is a theme party. Mm -hmm. It has to be a theme, right? And it's almost this feeling that as you get older, you have to try so much harder to have fun. Whereas when we were kids or teenagers or younger, fun, just getting together was fun. You didn't have to force it. So I don't know where that, and that's, all those sorts of questions that got raised in the book like why do we do that why do we feel this need as we get older to create the fun i think it's like performative fun i think you yeah. kind of lose um <laughs> because our time is valuable and especially like as you get older increasingly yeah you know, valuable, the way that you use that time, the pressure on it just becomes greater and greater. It has to be, 
you know, it just has to do everything. Your, your Friday night has to be productive and it has to make you feel good and it has to be about socialising and it has to look good on Instagram and it has to, you know, all of these things. And I think it ends up becoming, uh, yeah, a little uh, performative in the way that we schedule uh, and act out fun. And, but like you say, and this is what I try and get across in the book, that it's actually, you can actually just integrate yeah. <laughs> this kind of, uh, you know, pleasure and happiness into your day-to-day -day life um, in a way that is <laughs> purely just for you. You don't have to put it on display and it actually doesn't have to, you know, it doesn't have to involve a huge amount of corralling and and organizing um but but you the trick is to not feel bad about it like the trick is to not see that as time as wasting your time um if it's not performative like if it's purely for you uh you can you can think that you should be doing something else but actually it's 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 great it's very effective it's a very effective use of your time <laughs> um another thing that i found really interesting about the, your journey, the amount of people who are curious about your husband and how he felt about it all. So um, did, were you surprised that so many people were asking about your husband when you were talking to them about this project? Uh, I mean, still do. I mean, they still do ask. Um, yeah, I just go, oh, it's in the book. Don't worry. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, don't give away too much because I think that's a, that's a really good part of the book. <laughs> I just found it curious that you're talking about your project, but people were curious about your husband's take on it. Because it was, because it's about Benedict Cumberbatch, right? So my, so this is where it is about Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, so my, you know, joy, my, my passion was for this, this human man. Uh, you know, as, as a textual object, like I, I, do, I don't, I'm not under the illusion that I know him like, as a person, nor do I want to know him as a person. It's purely, you know, my projected, um, <laughs> my feelings projected onto his image. But he is still just a human man. And a lot of those feelings are like desirous, like they're, um, I don't know, for want of a better <laughs> I don't know, horny? Is that, that sounds terrible. But I mean, that's what it is. It's like, it's, it's to do with like attraction. Like it's a, it's a form of attraction. So people, you know, see that as threatening. That must, my husband must feel threatened by, by this idea. But um, I mean, <laughs> I like, I don't want to give too much away, but he's, uh, if I think that if you're under the illusion that if you are in a relationship with someone that you are literally not allowed to to think yeah. uh, about any other person in this way I, is very uh, unimaginative. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, that's strange. Yeah, and I, I would, uh, especially the the women who bring it up to me, I do give them. I say, do you? Do you, like, do you honestly think your husband like only thinks about <laughs> you? Like, like, it's, like uh, and, uh, and, and the difference is like my, my husband is an actual human man, like who I live with and love. Uh, he's, 
Benedict Cumberbatch is not going to take me away from him. It's it's not like I'm having an actual affair. He's just, it's like a stimulation uh, to to your your inner life. Um, And also it's funny. Like my husband could appreciate the humour in it. Like it's, there's, I think that in, in women's desire, there is a lot of like playfulness. And uh, he thought it was very funny. And I continue to think it's very funny as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it, it is interesting how you, there's, it's, it really is assumed that it is his business. Um, yeah. And a, big, and a big sticking point in your marriage. Yeah. We've hit our 20 minute mark, unfortunately, because I could be sitting here talking to you for ages. But um, I just wanted to end off on congratulating you and the designers on how beautiful this book is. Can I just say they've done an amazing job. People listening at home, make sure you go and have a look on our website at the cover. And I'm sure it's going to start a whole new trend of jackets. So congratulations on the book. Congratulations on... um, on the cover (laughs) and uh, all the best with this this book thank you thanks so much for having me you're very welcome thanks to Kemi Neckfapil Eliza Riley and Tabitha Carvin you can find links to all of the books discussed today in our show notes or head over to booktopia.com.au And be sure to join us this Friday as Nick brings you a special podcast covering the books that we are reading and enjoying, uh, along with members of the University of Sydney's Media and Communication Society. Thanks for listening and never stop reading.